welcome. <laughs> it is good and it is an awesome privilege to gather around the Word of God together. Welcome to week five of 24 hours that changed the world as we walk with Jesus through the last 24 hours of his life on earth with us. We started on Thursday evening of his life as he gathered in an upper room with his disciples and celebrated the Passover meal. We walked with Jesus out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed, God, not my will, but yours. We walked with him as he was betrayed and arrested and put on trial by his own religious leaders and by the people who only a few days earlier had shouted welcome and hailed him as their savior. And then he was beaten and sentenced to death in trade for a murderer who was let go free. So now here we are about 8 o'clock on Friday morning. It's been about 13 hours since Jesus sat down to eat in that upper room with his disciples. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, or pull out a pew Bible, turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15 with me. When we left off last week at chapter 15, verse 15, it simply said that Pilate released Barabbas from his prison cell and had Jesus flogged. And that's where we're picking up again this week. Chapter 15 of Mark, verse 15. And we'll read through verse 23. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him into the courtyard of the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole cohort And they clothed him with a purple cloak, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him. And they began saluting him. Hail, King of the Jews! They struck his head with a reed and spat upon him and knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. They compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Friends, this is the word of the Lord for us today, God's word. Thank you, God. Thank you that you do not leave us without your word, but you are always speaking to us. You are always drawing us to you. So open our hearts and our ears to hear your voice today. Amen. It's interesting here, as the violence aimed at Jesus increases, the story, the narrative decreases. The words get fewer and fewer. Just a little phrase in verse 15. A little phrase that says, After flogging Jesus, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. 
after flogging Jesus, so easy to skip over that little phrase. And frankly, I'd, I'd, I'd like to skip over it. I'd like to be able to just walk us through to the end of the crucifixion and on to the resurrection because that's the good part of the story, right? That's the happy part. And after flogging Jesus, I don't want to stay there. But Mark put those words in the gospel for us. And Jesus was flogged for us. And today we're going to stop and we're going to take a deeper look. As uncomfortable as that is, as painful as that is, we're going to stop and take a deeper look at the torture and the humiliation that Jesus suffered for us. Let's join Adam Hamilton back in Jerusalem. Well, trying to better, well, trying to better understand the Roman act of flogging, I visited the Bible Times Center in Ein Karim, one of Jerusalem's suburbs. We're focusing on the Roman scourging, and you remember that this was designed to inflict the maximum amount of pain without killing the victim. Uh, the whip would have included uh, uh, would have included fish hooks. It would have included uh, pieces of metal or glass, and some suggest that the victim was whipped first on the front and then on the back. A flagellation uh, uh, post would have been used, and so the victim would have found themselves bound to the post with their uh, their hands bound, their, their body would have been drawn taut across the post, and this would have allowed for the maximum amount of impact of the scourging upon their back. And as we see this, we remember and we visualize Jesus, who the scripture says in Isaiah was wounded for our transgressions, was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace was upon him, and by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. If you were to visit Jerusalem, the first station of the cross marks the place where Jesus was beaten. It's called the Chapel of the Flagellation. The lintel over the door is etched with a crown of thorns, and upon entering the chapel, there are three dramatic stained glass windows. The first, to the left, as one enters, is Pontius Pilate washing his hands. To the right is Barabbas, who's being released. But in the center is the image of Jesus, tied to a Roman column, preparing to be flogged, first on the front of his body, before being flogged on his back. The most striking feature of this chapel is the crown of thorns in the ceiling. It's a reminder of Christ's humiliation that occurred near this place. And after flogging Jesus, that little phrase, those few words, they tell a terrible story. A terrible story. Flogging was designed to get people as close as possible to death while still keeping them alive so they could go on for execution. Flogging laid bare people's muscles and even bones, and the Roman historians tell us that often people did die from floggings. I wonder if Jesus, during that time, heard in his head those words from Isaiah, I offered my back to those who beat me. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. But the suffering that Jesus endured was not just physical suffering. Those soldiers inflicted emotional suffering on him as well by taunting him and humiliating him. It says in Mark that they called together the whole cohort of soldiers. This was several hundred, 300 maybe, or some scholars say 600, but lots of people. Imagine this room packed with people all shouting 
and, and humiliating and, and taunting Jesus. Imagine the noise of that. After Jesus was flogged, they stood him up. And they put a purple cloak on him. Soldiers would wear a cloak around themselves as part of their uniform. Perhaps one of them took off their cloak and, and put it on Jesus. Purple was the color of royalty. Or maybe they just found an old red or purple rag somewhere and wrapped that around him. And they said he wanted to be called a king. He said he was a king. He's supposedly the king of the Jews. Let's treat him like a king. So they put the robe on him, and they put a crown of thorns around his head. There's lots of thorny bushes that grow in the Holy Land. There's a kind of date palm tree that has big, long thorns. It would have been pretty easy to find some branches and twist them together and make a crown of thorns and put that on his head. The Caesars, the, the emperors of, of Rome, wore crowns made of leaves. So a crown of thorns would be an especially um, sad and humiliating um, um, imitation of that. And then with that crown of thorns on his head, they hit him on the head. You know how much a little wound on your head bleeds a lot? I can remember as a little girl, my dad had gone off to play basketball with some guys at the town hall, and one of them had come up for a shot and come down with his elbow and just knocked my dad in the forehead and just split it open a little. And I can remember my dad coming back to the house with blood just pouring down his face and being amazed and shocked at all that blood, and it was just a little cut. And I think of Jesus with those thorns poking into his head and how much blood there must have been going down uh, across his face. And they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. Instead of long live Caesar, hail, King of the Jews. And instead of kneeling to kiss their king, they spat on him. Why would they do this to Jesus? Why would people treat an innocent man this way? What kind of people do this to an innocent victim? And you know, it's not just the soldiers in this story. It's Judas who betrays Jesus. It's the Sanhedrin demanding that he be put to death. They are the people who really should know better. It's the crowd who demanded that instead of a murderer, that Jesus be the one put to death. It's Pontius Pilate who knew that Jesus was innocent, but washed his hands of it and said, go ahead, let him be crucified. How could people be involved in this kind of stuff? Were they just desensitized? It is true that in the ancient world, human life was treated very cheaply. But there's more here. It was all of them, but it's all of us as well. It's the human heart. It's the human condition. Our world today also treats life cheaply. When you hear the numbers of people that were killed in the Holocaust in, in, the, in World War II, it's, it's mind-boggling. And since then, it's been Rwanda and human 
uh, sin comes out all over the place in Abu Ghraib and next door and all the lots of different places we look. Perhaps most troubling of all is that under the right conditions or under the wrong conditions, there is a streak of, of cruelty in all human beings, in all of us. If you've ever been unnecessarily cruel, not just to an enemy, but to a friend or a coworker or even members of your own family, then you have experienced this shocking darkness that we encounter in our own hearts. Perhaps that's why Adam Hamilton points out these last 24 hours of Jesus' life as portrayed in the Gospels, are a case study in, hum- in the human condition. Judas' betrayal, the disciples' abandonment, the Sanhedrin's jealousy, the rage of the crowds, Pilate's acquiescence, the soldiers' cruelty. If you want to know what we need saving from, look at the story of Jesus. It is the story of the human condition. Look inside our own hearts. In 1963, there was a professor at Yale University named Stanley Milgram. He paid people $4 an hour, which is, you know, in 1963 was more than $4 is now, but still not a a huge amount of money. He paid people $4 for one hour of their time, and he set them up in an experiment. He told them that they were to, to deliver shocks to a person in the next room who would be answering questions, and when they got the question wrong, they were to push a button and deliver a shock to that person in the next room, and they could adjust the amount of electricity that would go and shock that person. Now, the people who agreed to be in this study who were pushing the buttons didn't know that there really was no electricity going through those wires, but the folks in the other room were coached to scream and shout and make it sound like they were really being shocked. And they were told, the people pushing the button, how many volts they could go to before it would get into the danger zone. And the professor uh, Milgram put an authority figure in the room with the button-pushing people who would keep telling them, keep increasing, keep increasing the voltage, keep pushing the button. Well, scientists guess that 1% of people would go too far. Guess how many people went too far? 65%. were willing to increase the voltage to 450 volts, which was in the danger zone. In 1971, a Stanford University professor Dr. Philip Zimbardo created an experiment. He made a mock prison in the basement of one of the buildings in college, and he got 24 middle-class college students to agree to take part in his experiment. And he randomly chose 12 of them to be guards and 12 of them to be prisoners, and the intent was to study how those two groups interacted with each other. The plan was for the experiment to go on for 14 days, but they had to call it off after six days because the guards were taking their jobs so seriously that they were beginning to mistreat the prisoners. We are all capable of this stuff. When we hear situations on the news 
of great human evil. It's so tempting to call people monsters or animals or fiends. But that just is to comfort ourselves and say they're not like us. But we're all made of the same stuff. It's the human heart. We are all capable of saying and doing things under the wrong conditions that we would not imagine we could do. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian novelist, says this, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? That's the sad truth. We are all capable of great good and great evil. But Jesus said this in John chapter 8, verse 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, how does the truth of the human heart set us free? Well, it's actually a relief to not have to pretend that we have never been bad enough to deserve punishment. It is actually a relief to be open and broken before Jesus and to say, I need what you have to offer. What Jesus shows us in this hour, in this chapter of Mark, is that the power of evil is strong and it is everywhere, but the power of the love of God is even stronger. That is the good news. That is the good news with a capital G and a capital N. The good news that God demonstrates his love for us in this. It says in Romans 5.8, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, for you and for me. Before we could even come close to being worthy of his love, God knows the truth about us, the fallenness, the evil of the human heart, and he still deeply loves us. He is especially fond of each one of you and of me. That is great news. If you are proud and you're self-sufficient and you don't really think you're that bad, you'll never experience the love and the hope of Christ but it's from a place of brokenness and need that we can receive what Christ has to offer. That's good news. That's a huge relief because no one can say, well, if you knew my past, you wouldn't say that God could love me. No one can say that. No one can say, well, I've done too much. I've gone too far. I, I can't be made new. You've probably heard people say, if I walked into a church, the roof would fall in on me, right? And they say it in a joking way, but often it hides that sense of, I don't know. I think that maybe I'm just not a good candidate for the love of God because of what I've done. But no one has gone too far. No one has gone too far for the love of God to reach them. We all need Christ. We all need Christ. 
And Christ welcomes each of us. Mark says, after mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. As Kenneth Sawyer reminds us, for every child who has ever been picked on or taunted or humiliated or bullied, Jesus stood there that day before those soldiers. For every man and woman who has ever been made to feel small by others, Jesus stood there that day. For everyone who has ever been the victim of abuse or falsely condemned, for all who carry a heavy burden, Jesus stood there that day. And for those of us who have done the hurting and the hitting and the abusing and the mocking and the harassing and the hating, Jesus stood there that day. He did it for us. He did it for you and for me. All of us have humiliated Jesus at times by saying one thing on Sunday and living another thing on Monday. But he stands there for us. He loves us. He loves us. Matthew Henry says, those that bow the knee to Christ but do not bow their soul, that draw near to him with their mouths and honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him, put the same insult on Jesus as those soldiers did. That's humbling. But he loves us anyway. It is in our weakness that God can do his greatest work. In our weakness that we find the strength of God. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. That's amazing love. And that reality affects how we live. It affects how we live in a million ways. Let me just offer one piece of way we could apply this in our everyday lives. Let me suggest that it affects what we do when we wake up in the morning, that before our feet hit the side of the bed, before we get out of bed, we take a moment to ask God to guide us, to help us, to protect us, that we remember again that we depend on Jesus for everything, that we need his help to ask him to protect you today. And then let me suggest that none of us go to sleep at night before we just take a moment and say, God, how did it go today? How did I do? Are there things you want to show me in my life that need to be cleaned up and that I need a new start for so that we can end each day forgiven and made new and more like Christ? Keep me near the cross. That's our prayer. As Isaiah foretold some 700 years before Jesus, he wrote these words, due to an unjust ruling, he was taken away. Like someone from whom people hid their faces, he was despised. It was certainly our sickness that he carried and our sufferings that he bore, but we thought him afflicted, struck down by God and tormented. He was pierced because of our rebellions and crushed because of our crimes. He bore the punishment that made us whole. 
and by his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. That is good news. That is the best news of all. By his wounds, we are healed. He did this for us. Let's pray. God, you did this for us. You went through all of this because you love us, and we don't deserve it. God, what else can we do but give our lives to you in gratitude and wonder? We think of that word from the song, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. As we get ready to share together the meal that you've given us, we are humbled and we are grateful. We ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on the bread and the cup that we're about to receive. God, we want to meet you in person at this table. And Lord, there are things in our lives that we want to leave behind as we come to share at the table with you. Sins that we want to be free of. So we confess them to you now. And we ask for a new start. And we ask that your power would be at work in us to make us the body of Christ, to make us more like you, so that the world will see how good you are. We give you all honor and praise in the name of Jesus.